Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Friday Five, my topical weekly dip into the world of well-being, covering a veritable smorgasbord of topics from acne to zinc, with a healthy sprinkling of microbiome, mental health, menopause, and uh, what else begins with M? Uh, makeup? Yes, along the way. <laughs> well, it's an eclectic mix, I know, but it's one which I hope resonates with my mostly, but not exclusively, obviously, midlife female listeners. And you are all, whoever you are, wherever you are, most very welcome here. And a warm hello, in fact, to those of you who do tune in from around the globe. It is lovely to be able to reach so many so far afield and spread some words of healthful positivity amongst the, well, sometimes gloomy daily news. And positivity it is, actually, with some lovely comments and reviews that have come in from those joining me across my various social media channels. I've picked up a few comments here on my Instagram. Uh, those of you who are on Instagram may know that we have two Instagram feeds. If you'd like to follow, there's Lizelle Wellbeing, which is the magazine Instagram. And that is where my team mostly put up all kinds of articles and interviews and behind the scenes things. And that's also where I now do my Instagram lives every Monday and Wednesday lunchtime. If you are in the UK, they're at 12.30 UK time. Uh, otherwise, you can watch them on Catch Up. They stay up for a while on Instagram over on Lizelle Wellbeing. And then I also have my personal Instagram, which is at Lizelle Me, which is, well, a bit more personal, really. Uh, and anyway, these are a couple of messages. Uh, this has come in from a lady called Emma. And she says, Dearest Liz, I know you cannot possibly respond to all the messages you received, but I do hope that you read them. Uh, yes, I do. So thank you. I just want to say thank you. Thank you a million times over for educating me all about things menopause. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are not enough words to express how your teachings have changed my life for the better. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. And that's from Emma. 
Well, thank you, Emma. It is great to know that. And many of you who've listened to me over the years will know that it is a kind of, I guess it's a cornerstone of what we do here. And I go really, I try not to always bang on about it, but it is such a fundamental, isn't it, for midlife women, all of whom will have a menopause. And in fact, some may have it much earlier than others. Uh, but it is an inevitability. It's not a, a maybe or a might be or a nice to have or possibly. Um, it is something that if we live long enough as women, we will all have. And a significant number of women do actually have early onset menopause. So we really do need to know about the effect of our declining estrogen. Uh, talking of which, there was another message here that came in from Rosemary, and this is actually more of a question, which I'm going to throw out there because it's something that has been bothering me, and it's about the ongoing scandal of the ineffectiveness of estradose gel compared to estrogel. Anyway, I'm just going to throw this out there, and maybe if you have any comments, you can let me know either through email, which is hq at lizardwellbeing.com. Or you can leave a comment on our Instagram feeds, either mine or that of my magazine. Um, I don't do private message, by the way. I don't do direct message because otherwise I just get way overloaded. Uh, but I do definitely look at the comments that are left on my channel there. Anyway, Rosemary says... Um, I'm actually messaging you, Liz, about Estradose. It's the one with the green square on the pump. I've been using this for almost eight weeks. I found that when I started my first bottle, it worked quite quickly, stopping the hot flushes and the chills. It then took another week or so for the anxious feeling I have in my tummy to go. Then, when I was about halfway down the bottle, my anxious tummy feeling came back and it didn't go again until a few days after I started a new bottle. And then it happened again. The anxious tummy feeling came back about three days in. And I've realised I'm about halfway through it again. Have you had any reports of it getting weaker as it starts to get towards the lower half of the bottle? Many thanks, Rosemary. That is interesting, isn't it? Well, as you may well know, I've had lots and lots of comments of you who found that Estradose is not as effective, in some cases not effective at all, as estrogel. And I have warned you about this and said if that's if you get estrogel, please peel back the label to make sure it hasn't been over-labeled. I've also had some worrying reports in the last few weeks that the newly repackaged estrogel is not as effective, even though it is genuine estrogel. This is the first time I've actually heard that it could be something to do with the settling of the contents in the pump. Oh my goodness, it all gets very forensic, doesn't it? Anyway, I'm throwing it out there to you lovely people. If you are using estrogel and you get halfway down your pump and it starts to not work as well, do please drop me a line and let me know. I would love to know. Well, of course, it's not just Instagram where you can leave messages or reviews. There's a lot of reviews actually on iTunes. Um, this one here was left on the 15th of September, so last week and it was left by fab122 so thank you very much for your comment fab122 you say this was about my podcast last week with ollie hunter which i loved oh my goodness if you haven't listened to that do please go and have a listen and it seems that fab122 enjoyed it as well because he or she says listening to this podcast with liz and ollie was so enlightening from plum kernel creme brulee 
blackcurrant leaf yogurt and corn on the cob kernel ice cream. Who would have thought it? I need to plant some blackcurrant bushes now and rewatch your yogurt making episode, feeling inspired. And I also want to explore the world of dowsing rods. Thank you so much, Liz. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for reminding me of all of that. It was a really good episode. Ollie, what a great guy. Oh my goodness. If you haven't listened to that, then do please pop it on your to-do list, perhaps for the weekend. It was great. And he is a lovely young man, a foodie and an eco-warrior. And actually, there are so many, many good episodes. I was trying to find an episode recently for somebody else, and it just made made me go through the back catalogue. I think we have something like 264 episodes of the main Lizelle Wellbeing show. So much there. And what I love about this podcast is the difference, the different topics that we get to talk about. There was high fat eating and high intensity exercise with Zana Morris, breast cancer and HRT with Kirsty Lang, sleep with Professor Matthew Walker. There was practical psychology. That was a really good popular one with Dr. Sophie Moore talking about the heartbeat of trees with the Bavarian forester, Peter Woolaburn. I've talked about chronic pain management with my own daughter, Lily. I've talked about beating brain fog. I've talked about sepsis with Dr. Ron Daniels. Talked about weight loss tips. Talked about ivermectin. I've talked about menopause with Dr. Louise Newson. I've talked about probiotics for pelvic health, nutrigenomics with Emma Bezzi. Oh my goodness, how to ditch fast fashion with Livia Firth, gut health and brain health with Miguel, the disco gut doctor. I mean, it just goes on and on. Seriously, there are some great treasures to be found in the back catalogue. So I hope very much that you will enjoy. But now let us crack on with this week. And speaking of podcasts generally, one of our most popular episodes of all times was the podcast that I recorded towards the end of last year with Patrick Holden. He is the founder of the Sustainable Food Trust. And we talked all about our nation's food security, what we should and shouldn't be eating, and how many of the so-called food facts are in fact misinformation or even downright lies. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting, challenging and thought-provoking episode. And I would encourage you to download it and take a listen if you haven't already, or perhaps even to re-listen to it, as I did recently, to remind myself of Patrick's brilliance when it comes to food and farming. If you would like to find it, you will find it by searching How to Eat Sustainably with Patrick Holden. That's on the Lazar Wellbeing Show or it's episode number 92, if that is an easier way to look it up. Now, I am a long time supporter and advocate of the Sustainable Food Trust, one of their first advocates, if not the first, I think. And it's a charity dedicated to the provision of better quality food for our sustenance on every level. An organisation started by my now good friend and tireless food campaigner, Patrick Holden. He is the former longtime director of the Soil Association, and he himself is an organic and regenerative farmer with a family farm in Wales. And he is also a global food activist. And I remember actually being in Washington, D.C. many years ago with Patrick for the launch event of the Sustainable Food Trust, which was 
held at the magnificent botanical gardens right in the heart of central Washington. Beautiful place. If you find yourself in downtown Washington, do please head there. It's a lovely way to while away a few hours. Well, the day afterwards, I attended the keynote address given by none other than His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, also a longtime and passionate advocate and supporter of all aspects of rural life and regenerative agriculture in particular. So I subscribe to the Sustainable Food Trust's newsletter. It's a really good one, along with mine, obviously, that comes out on a Friday. I think the Sustainable Food Trust's newsletter tends to come out at the end of the week as well, and it's worth getting on their mailing list. And I spotted in their last newsletter that there was some news from one of their amazing key workers, Richard Dunn. And so I invited him here onto my podcast to talk about it. Richard Dunn is a former head teacher and here we talk through some really encouraging and positive ways that we can start to think about the food on our plates and how that fits into education generally, whether that's for our children or for ourselves. Thinking about where the food comes from, the resources that are needed to provide it, how food fits into our landscape on so many levels from an educational perspective, especially relevant perhaps both in terms of this time of year as we enter the harvest season. That's the harvest season of British food bounty. And also half term, of course, as that looms nearer with parents, grandparents, friends and extended family, maybe looking forward to spending a bit more home time with children and younger people around us. So let's hear it now from Richard and some very interesting new ways to think about food in the home. So, Richard, a very warm welcome onto my little podcast. It's great to have you here. One of our most popular podcasts of all time was with Patrick Holden. And so it's lovely to be able to continue that conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Liz. It's great to be with you. Well, I know from getting your regular newsletters from the Sustainable Food Trust that this is an incredibly busy month for you. And I think it's really important to talk about seasonal food and produce because September always seems to be the month when we reevaluate. We're looking at harvests. The farmers are bringing the crops in. There's a whole new sort of change of color of foods now in the in the shops for us to buy. Can we talk a little bit first uh, before we go into the specifics of that, just a little bit about your role within the trust and your background because I think it's really fascinating to hear your journey in this whole kind of story of, of food provenance. Yes so I mean if I go right back to my own education I don't think I did any food education at all and uh, it was very formal very academic and then I left school and university and went traveling and started to see a real world and when I came back into the education system as a teacher and then on into a leadership role, I was very conscious that we needed to kind of link the real world and food as a great example of that into the learning. So, so that's really what I suppose drove my, my own journey and, and the work that I then did as a state school head teacher. And more recently, I've taken that message into the Sustainable Food Trust, working, as you say, closely with Patrick Holden to see how we can rethink learning to make sure that aspects of learning like food and where does our food come from and what, what's in season when is very central to what our children and young people understand. 
That's really so fascinating, Richard, because most of the foodies that I talk to here on my podcast, they're either chefs and cooks and, and kind of kitchen specialists, or they are farmers and producers and growers. I think this is the first time that we've had um, a head teacher talking <laughs> about this food from from an educational point of view. But I think from my experience, so much of food education has been lost, hasn't it, in school? I remember doing cookery classes at school, and I know that's something that doesn't really happen now, does it? I think it happens in pockets, and where you've got a school with either a head teacher or a leader of some kind who's got a passion for it, then I think it will continue. Um, but in you're right, in the, in the majority of cases, it's not there, and and it's a challenge. I mean, you know, if you look at what schools are managing that particularly right now, post-COVID, hopefully post-COVID, yes. um, you know, there's a lot going on. So yes. it's about, I suppose, rethinking how to deliver learning rather than seeing this as another thing to do and a thing to add to an already overloaded timetable. Sure. I mean, I, I love some of the practical points. And I guess from your point of view, having been, you know, a, a practicing teacher, if, if you like, you know, looking at the different areas where food can be woven into the curriculum, for example, having a map of the world and sticking pins in it with labels for each food just to, to get a sense of where all these different food sources are coming from, because, you know, some produce will only grow in tropical countries, for example, and, and just kind of bringing that home and they can then identify, kids can identify with what's on their plate at home home with their geography lesson, for example, to make it relevant. Absolutely. And I think what's um, what's so exciting about this and what makes it work so well for children and, and younger people is that um, they're immediately engaged. So if you took that idea that you've just highlighted and took a plate of food and literally slapped it down on the table and said, right, our learning this half term is going to be all about what's on this plate. And then you went on journeys and you explored it through an inquiry. So you ask questions and you get them to really think th through things. Um, and you might say, you know, we've got some tropical fruit for dessert and let's have a look at where it's come from and the journey. And what do we think about that? Particularly at this time of year, of course, when we've got lots of fruits from, you know, local orchards and farm gro and food growers. Uh, it's a really fascinating conversation. And I think the ownership of it then is the children's because they start to say, actually, do you know what? I do think it's good to eat seasonal food rather than food that's come from the other side of the world. It's so fascinating. And I, I think that's a takeaway that all of us can have and share, whether we're parents or grandparents or, you know, aunts or godparents or whatever, this half term coming up, or if you're sitting and eating, particularly with younger people. And actually, it doesn't even just have to be, you know, kids and, and younger people. Actually, it's a thought provoking conversation, isn't it? About, OK, what are we eating tonight or over the weekend? Where has it come from? And also importantly, and this is an important part of the Sustainable Food Trust work, how was it produced? How has it arrived onto our plates? Yeah, and I think there's there's a lovely journey there from with younger children, just giving them a sense of how that food has grown, ideally with food that you've grown yourselves in your school or within your wider community. And then as they get older, you can really start to explore some of the ethical issues around what kind of food systems do we have? And you know, obviously this big focus now much more on regenerative cyclical systems that um, are feeding back into the soil, not just extracting out. So yeah, there's some, there's some great learning that can be built. And I suppose my ideal would be that year on year, term by term, the children through their connection to the seasonality of food and, and the world around them, they, they really start to build an amazing story of, of their food. 
I think it, that is absolutely fascinating and not only from a geographical point of view, but also when you think of all the other, you know, things that come into play like business ethics and then you've got biology because you've got the micro microbiome of the soil and soil health and the role of earthworms in regenerative agriculture, the role of grazing cattle on the land, fertilizing the soil and why it's important to have things like cows and sheep, you know, grazing land, particularly in the UK when so much of our land is pasture and can't be used for growing other other food crops. I mean, there's just so much, isn't there? Once you start opening up the possibilities and saying, oh, what if we ask these questions, all related to a very simple thing that we all do fundamentally every day, which is have food on our plates in front of us? It's really that, isn't it? Because uh, we all eat food every day. So we've all got this connection to it. And I think if we can ask really brilliant questions uh, to open up those conversations and the complexity, as you say, there's there's so much in it. I mean, the issue of meat is not straightforward. It's got lots of different angles to it, um, as we know so well from our from our own conversations and, and with people like Patrick. So, yeah, I think, you know, again, as as young people grow up, starting to really engage with the ethical issues, the the complexity of those issues is is great conversation. And and they need to be, you know, they want to be well informed. There are a lot of young people out there now who really are passionate about food uh, and they want to understand the systems that produce it. I love the piece in the newsletter that you wrote about going out blackberrying with your daughter recently and how that really turned into quite an interesting conversation, didn't it, on lots of levels? Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? Because you, well, one, we kept... Um, pricking our fingers so we weren't quite sure whether it was blackberry juice or blood coming off our hands but um yeah it was just so lovely how you start to observe things because of, of course uh, to start with you're wanting to find the best blackberries and you know dad you get that one up there because I can't reach it and I'll do the ones down here um but then you start to you know appreciate that little world that you're in and what's there and the brambles and other things that are growing and maybe maybe some fruits from a you know a fruit tree so um i think it's that you know we are often quite prescriptive around how we learn you know this is how it's going to be this is a lesson activity but i think more and more maybe it's an age thing i feel that we need to be a bit more organic with it and just go with the flow and and see opportunities to open up the learning um, and have great conversation on the way and of course, a lot of our kids these days are, are kind of mini eco warriors because they're being brought up with that kind of narrative in the background. And when you're out foraging for free food, that's a real contrast, isn't it? To say, you know, sort of a tasteless punnet of blueberries that come packed in single use plastic on a supermarket shelf, having traveled halfway around the world from, you know, Poland or tropical fruits from, you know, Brazil or somewhere like that. I mean, that, that sparks a whole other conversation, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I think, you know, there's there's a real passion with young people around environmental type issues. But there's also, as, as you're so aware, there's this, this anxiety as well. They're concerned. They don't quite know what to do. So the more we can bring that back into their reality of the things that they're eating that day uh, and where they've come from and what do they think about that, the, the more empowering it is, actually. Um, and I think that's where we can shift the focus away from being a bit concerned to being a real positive that if we can start to make choices and decisions around what we want to eat, inform our school kitchen, you know, see about growing food in our grounds if we've got that space, uh, then it becomes a really positive thing and a really exciting thing to engage with. And you feel like you're, you know, you're leading something then rather than getting a lot of information which is just worrying. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. It's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O- L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. I think that is an excellent point. You know, I think as we know, our children's mental health has been so damaged over the last 18 months and continues to be so, I have to say, with, you know, so much mm. fear uh, and, and scaremongering around and, and this feeling that you can have an area of your life where there is an element of control. And I've always said this, actually, over the years when I've been writing about food and, and wellness is that actually what we put into our mouths is one of the few things that we do have control over. You know, we can't necessarily control where we live or the air that we breathe or perhaps some of the stresses that we're under. But choosing what goes into our shopping trolley is a determined maneuver that we can make, you know, to use a kind of army term, you know, we, we can decide tactically how we're going to shop and, and what we're going to buy. And perhaps giving that as an idea for children, that they have that sense of empowerment. What are they going to choose to put on their plates? What are they going to eat? Which countries are they going to choose to support? Do they want to support local farmers and growers? Do they want to buy British? What does that mean? And put them back in control in a positive way that means that they're, you know, they are kind of part of the solution, not, not part of the ongoing problem. I completely agree with you. And if you look at organisations like the brilliant Teach the Future, uh, and young people who are saying, we want to learn more about our future and where we're going. We want to learn about climate change, biodiversity loss and so on. And one of them was very clear in, on exactly your point. She said, I had a uh, an eating disorder and it was because I was so worried about where my food was coming from and I didn't know what to do. So I stopped eating. And, and then she turned that right round to exactly what you've highlighted and said, well, actually, if I do make choices and I am considered about what I buy and what I eat and put in my mouth then that is a solution and uh, and so a lot of her message which was really exciting to hear was was to say so let's let's more of us do that uh, and be conscious consumers of our food Mm. And hopefully then end up with something that's more nutritious as well. And it's very interesting. I work in the world of well-being. So looking at some of the nutritional studies showing the, the high levels of antioxidants, for example, in certain organic fruit, fruit and veg, particularly grown in the UK, as well as food that is fresher because it hasn't been shipped across the globe. It hasn't been kept in cold storage. So nutritionally, we're, we're likely to be better off as well. Yes. And I think this, you know, the local seasonal bit, probably a lot of young people get that. Um, the more complex bit is this whole 
what is the system that's producing it? Because we often don't know, do we? So the more we can find out and you know track back that journey of learning, as you say, from, from a producer that might be the other side of the world rather than maybe um, tens of miles away, but certainly hundreds of miles away. Um, it's, a really, it's a really great way to start to understand. And I, I think a lot of this is about understanding, isn't it? That um, at the end of it, you know, that, that information giving us the power to make the choices um, is what we want to see. What kind of things do you recommend that everybody, children, adults alike, look out for on food labels? What are the kind of the, the clues and the key words, if you like, that, that would be helpful as part of this? Well, I suppose the starting point is to try and buy you know, your, your reference to fresh food. So food that where you know exactly where it's come from. So, um, you know, if you're linking into markets and there are some amazing markets around the country, then uh, you can have those conversations and you can find out more. And I think the more we can get schools and, and young people connected to the food growers, the better. Mm. Uh, and there are some good projects, I think, really starting to take shape now around that. Um, I think beyond that, coming back to the question of, you know, the map of the world or, or the map yeah. of the UK, just saying, let's, let's get our food today and let's bring it home and, and let's just sit down with a, a drink and, and just talk it through and, and have a conversation as a family and really think about that. And then there'll always be those lovely spin-offs. I mean, you know, often grandparents have got really lovely stories to share about their own childhood or experiences of food, which were probably very different. And so you get that lovely intergenerational learning as well. Mm. The one caveat I would say there, and this is something I, I do feel quite strongly about having got um, connections with Kenya and working a lot with often subsistence farmers and, and seeing the impact and the importance to the economy there, literally life and death impact of, of buying and supporting trade in developing countries particularly. I remember doing an investigation into green beans that came from Kenya and having big discussions with people who were saying, oh, you know, I, I'd never buy, you know, Kenyan green beans. And when I actually looked into it, the, the beans were being flown in the freight, in the hold freight of planes that were in the sky anyway, that were, you know, that were taking people. Um, so in a way, you could almost say they were carbon neutral because those planes were there regardless whether the freight was, was you know, full or not. Um, and they were grown in natural sunshine. They weren't, you know, grown under artificial heat and light as they might be in the rest of Europe. And they weren't shipped across Europe in refrigerated containers. You know, they, they were literally handpicked, not using any kind of mechanization and providing really valuable income. So it's often, it's not just about saying, well, you know, all imports are bad. It is having that level of discernment, wouldn't you think? Yes, I agree. And I think that's where the whole focus on inquiry is so important, that we're not telling children this is how it is or this is how it should be. We're asking them questions. And sometimes we need to find out more information because we may not know enough about the journey of that food to our to mm. our plates or in, into our homes. So. Having those questions is really interesting. I think another aspect of this is is engaging with kitchens. I mean, most schools have kitchens. Some have, you know, um, they'll they'll heat up the food once it's been delivered. But um, but you know, starting to open up the conversations and blurring the line. I often think we're quite siloed in our thinking. So we might be learning about this in a classroom, say, when actually after that lesson we're going into the lunch hall uh, to have a meal and linking what we're learning in the classroom to the food that we're eating at lunchtime. So starting to blur the line and really work out 
some of the you know the really big issues around around these questions. What kind of resources are there for schools? I know a lot of people listening to this might be thinking, that's a really interesting idea. We're going to start those conversations perhaps during half term. How then can we pick that up in in a very easy way for schools? As you rightly said at the beginning, you know, schools are under an awful lot of pressure at the moment. We do not want to be applying more pressure, but we want to be able to give helpful ideas or pointers or resources. What are some of the projects going on at the moment that could help? Well, I think there are lots of organisations out there that will have resources around food. You know, if you look at uh, the Soil Association, their Food for Life programme, um, you know, they've got some lovely resources there. I think one of the things we're trying to do is to think about partners we can work with. So we're working at the moment with Square Food Foundation in Bristol, and we're looking at how we can develop a whole series of projects of learning around the story of our food. So the first one last half term was on bread. So let's look at bread, how it's made, where the uh, where it's come from in terms of its ingredients and and then enjoy it. So you've got a lovely three step process of exploring the, the story of the food and how it's it's arrived at, at the table, making something with it and then sharing it um, mm. having a sense of community around it. So certainly for us now, the the intention is to have ideally term by term, year on year. Um, a project around food and the different ingredients, uh, you know, bread and then an apple and something else that uh, that will really help children immerse themselves in in the science of that food, the history, the geography, the the mathematics around it and the way mm. and doing so that it becomes a very holistic thing. And I think for me, if I were to change one thing in education, it would be that our learning is more joined up, that it makes sense because it's got a coherence uh, and a real purpose to it because it's around a project, for example, on, you know, when is food at its best or or what kind of food should we be eating? Really fascinating. I love the fact that you brought it back to the practicality of sitting and having a meal. And I think at this time of year, obviously, many of us might be thinking of harvest festivals. And that's a really nice time, isn't it? Whether you can get together within your local community. I, I know a lot of kind of, um, you know, more rural environments, which have a lot of farmers and growers within their community will have in their village hall or their church setting some kind of feast, local feast. And But I think we can create that even in an urban environment. You can still have your own mini kind of harvest festival whether that's just with family and friends or your community perhaps your school or your book club or your you know your neighbors you know whichever your street and just celebrate some of the the local produce and and you know be thankful that we have at the moment got so so many amazing growers in the UK and that we do have a level of food security which is really important but of course we need to protect that don't we we really do. And I think you're absolutely right that just sometimes giving ourselves time to remember the people that have produced this food and all the incredible hard work that has gone into getting it to to our place for, for our meal. Uh, that's a really important element. I mean, just to give you a lovely example linked to Harvest Festival, uh, when I was a head teacher, we would do seasonal soups. So the oldest children in year six would uh, dig up vegetables. We had a, a growing area. They dig up vegetables. They'd work with the kitchen staff after lunch when it was a bit quieter, and um, and they would make seasonal soups. And they they had two choices. And then we had grandparents and elders within the community that came in, uh, and before the harvest festival, they would go round and they would share their uh, soups with 
these um, grandparents and elders from the community. And it was such a lovely interaction. Of course, they talked about how they've made the suits that linked to their Dig for Victory World War II project. Oh, my goodness. References to stories there. So, mm. yeah, just a really nice way of bringing it all to life. And I think the more we can do that, the better. I, that is so fantastic. I hope that has inspired lots of people listening to do exactly that, whether it's within a school setting or, or a local community setting or a group setting. Absolutely amazing. Tell us a little bit about the Harmony Project and the webinar, which I know is coming up, which I think many people after listening to you today might want to join in with. Yes. Yeah, so the Harmony Project um, is a new way of learning, really, which has been inspired by nature and nature's principles of harmony. So principles of diversity, cycles, interdependence, adaptation, and so on, and health, of course. So we're using these principles to underpin this way of learning. So really getting children to understand these universal eternal principles of life and how they enable any, any system to be sustainable and well. So we're really trying to reframe learning or recontextualize learning. Uh, in this nature-based and nature-inspired approach. So next month, at the beginning of October, on the 7th, we have a webinar at five o'clock, which is for anyone who's interested in food education. And what we're doing this time is we're speaking with someone called Kim Smith from Tasted. And she's done some amazing research on what she would regard as the best food education systems around the world and what is it that makes them so, so good. So we're we're going to explore some of her research and then start thinking about what does that mean for what we can do here to really make sure it's it's high profile in our education work here. Fantastic. So that's the 7th of October 2021 for those listening in real time. And how do we get information on that? How can we join? So if you go to the Harmony Project website, uh, you should find an Eventbrite link. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure I can send you also the link. So if you wanted it to, to share it, Definitely. Network, uh, we can do that too. Definitely. I'll make sure that that's in the podcast notes that we, we include a little URL um, with that where people download their podcasts. And before we go, Richard, I'd just like to touch on something very briefly, perhaps get an update from you. I remember reading last year about an amazing project that you and Bonnie had written about talking about the greening of British prisons. Yes. How is that going? Where are you with that now? Well, it's it's a fascinating project, as you can imagine. And uh, it started in Bristol Prison. And Bristol Prison has has had a lot of challenges around um, violence and self-harm and some, some pretty destructive behaviours. And one of the things they were really looking at and are continuing to look at uh, was how the prison could be greened up around learning uh, linked to this kind of approach that, that we're promoting through the Harmony Project. So very much looking at food. Uh, looking at flowers, creating gardens, uh, planting trees, having bees, and just reconnecting them to to the natural world and to to aspects of their food in in a way that's very non-threatening. And you know, I think a lot of people in that environment have maybe had bad experiences with with a formal education system. So so nature-based learning is very non-threatening for them. And we're now starting a conversation uh, in Dorset to look at, uh, I think there are three prisons there. So we're looking at how we can develop similar practices. There are already some lovely things going on, but it's very much joining up the dots and the thinking to see how we can, can use this approach as, a, as part of a rehabilitation program. I think that is just amazing. 
just brilliant. It's so great to chat to you, Richard. It's so it's so good to get some positive information and ideas and news about what you guys are doing out in the wider community and just the incredible help and uh, impactful nature of everything that you do. And I'm so grateful for you giving us some of your time today. And I hope that the webinar goes super well. I shall certainly be um, doing my best to log into that as well on the 7th of October. But for now, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Liz. Great pleasure to be with you and hope to speak again soon. Oh, so interesting and helpful, I think. And I will make sure that the links to those resources that Richard mentioned in our chat are indeed included in the podcast notes and the clickable links on my website, which is, of course, lizellewellbeing.com. Well, I hope that you managed to catch this week's long-form interview episode of the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. This week, I was joined by the inspirational Emily otherwise known as the arthritis foodie. And she talks about managing pain and symptoms through food, having first been diagnosed with arthritis in her 20s. Do take a listen to that episode. It is really so good and informative. Very good, in fact, for anybody managing any kind of pain. This one went out a couple of days ago. It started live there on the Wednesday of this week. You'll find that on the Lizard Wellbeing Show page of wherever you download your podcasts or there is a direct link, of course, as always, on lizardwellbeing.com, where you'll find all the podcasts and links to the entire back catalogue, current and from many years ago. Well, that is it for this week. Don't forget, please, to email me or leave a comment on my Instagram if you have been affected by the ongoing Estradose, Estragel saga, or if, like Rosemary, you have found a difference in efficacy once halfway down the bottle of gel. Always love to hear your feedback, too, on any of the topics that we have been discussing, either here or over on Facebook. Facebook, on Instagram, or the Lizard Wellbeing YouTube channel. Lots of lively chat, comments, and debate ongoing on YouTube as always. So until the next time we chat, have a very good weekend if you are listening to this on a Friday and a very good week ahead. In any case, go well. Bye-bye. everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. 
Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.